Whether it's digital or analog design that keeps you busy, today it's all about the experience. This is Experience by Design, a podcast exploring the latest trends and solutions helping create the most intriguing experiences you can imagine and the ones you can't. Hosted by Brian Mazaros. Welcome to another episode of the Experience by Design podcast. I'm your host, Brian Mazaros, and today we welcome Abigail Honor, founder of Lorem Ipsum. Lorem Ipsum is a multidisciplinary firm specializing in the planning, designing, and production of experiences. Their work includes museums, exhibits, immersive shows, visitor attractions, as well as all types of films and interactive media. Founded in 2000, the company is headquartered in New York with offices in London and Moscow. Their global team of over 40 professionals includes writers, filmmakers, designers, architects, technologists, and researchers. So it's my pleasure to welcome Abby to the show. Hey, Abby. Thanks for joining. Hey, Brian. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Absolute pleasure. I have been looking forward to this for a while um, when I reached out to you. So this is this is cool. This is definitely a conversation that I'm extremely jazzed to uh, to talk to you about so many things so how how are you maybe start there we'll start there how's it going so we are doing really well now obviously when covid hit round about february march there was a pause on a few very large projects that were about to sign on the dotted line yeah. that caused us to sort of <gasps> hold on oh, yes. oh yes oh yes you and, <laughs> and many many of us so you know i turned a little grayer and uh you know got a little more wrinkles and lost a little bit more sleep um but patience always is a virtue and it seems that over the last few months um things have started the old gears of resume turning and a lot of those projects that had been paused i'm fortunate to be able to tell you have now got moving again um so that was that was a welcome a welcome renewal of those contracts and starting on some very large projects, which will take us through for the next three years. Oh, nice. So have mm-hmm. you, so so you started, so let's start here. You started in 2000. And so, I mean, what was that that like starting at, at that time? Because I, I can remember back in that period that, you know, the practice of experience design, it wasn't really, I don't know, it didn't really have a term. So I'm I'm curious, how did you get started with the agency and and how did it get to the point that it is now? So we started Lorem Ipsum basically as a narrative media company. So we were making all kinds of films, documentaries, corporate videos, infomercials, shooting any kind of media. My background is as an artist, as a painter. And so I have a visual background. Then I moved into filmmaking. I went to Boston University for my master's degree. Um, And it was a great degree because it exposed me to script writing, sound recording, being a DP um, and directing and producing. So everything that was needed to tell stories um, using film and video. Um, And so fresh out of college, we formed this company, editing, shooting, anything we could get get our hands on. And then we slowly started to be asked to make stories um, for brands that were a little bit different or needs to be on larger screens um, or were for 
large launches and suddenly it went away from a TV back 20 years ago and a familiar commercial to a more immersive experience. And it was only really possible, Brian, because of technology. So we were waiting for the resolution to get larger and larger Sorry. up near film and it did and then the cameras were got made better and better resolution and so as that happened it enabled us to really be able to create media that was projected onto things so onto the outside of buildings um, onto huge screens and as soon as we could do that we could start making this um, experiential and immersive media which is where we sort of started things um, now about 15 years 10-15 years ago um, so our evolution our creative evolution was predicated on technology and its evolution and mm -hmm. you know every time the cameras got more and more sophisticated it meant that we could do more and more sure. things with it um, and the same really in terms of animation so within what we were shooting obviously we also create things in 2d we use after effects and 3d programs and so as computers got faster uh, chips got faster then we could make larger and larger things and we often find even now that that's what we butt up to is technology not being quick enough fast enough good enough to be able to maintain some of the ideas that we're having how did you so i'm, I'm curious about the the international growth that you had seen because you know having you know, outposts or offices over in London and Moscow are, are interesting. Was was there an intent from the beginning or do you just see it as more organic to where you were pulled over into into those areas of the world to to practice? So what ended up happening for us is obviously you can tell I'm from England, but uh, my family is ironically all over here in the States. Um, we found that a lot of the brands that we were working for were global. And they were asking us as the world was shrinking, as digital was taking over, uh, to produce a lot of our things in lots of different languages. Uh, so as we were making things up to 10 to 12 different languages and, you know, we'd have to go visit and speak with people. And it just became sort of made more sense for us to have a hub in London where we could reach people from a lot quicker and easier. So if we're traveling to Europe sure. or we have a project in Europe, London was our home base. Um, one of my business partners is actually Russian and from Moscow. And so we were fortunate enough to work with Ralph Applebaum and Associates oh, yeah. on their Yeltsin Presidential Museum, which was a wonderful project. Um, and they partnered with us because we had the bilingual staff. So we could do create things in Russian and in English. And that was one of our largest international projects that we worked on with them. Um, and that was a great springboard in terms of um, Russia and CIS, uh, because it was such a huge and sort of award-winning project that we were part of that enabled us to then uh, grow our business over in Russia um, and Eastern Europe and Europe. Um, and to, honestly, staff-wise, we've always had a multicultural staff. Uh, we also, our company's also in Armenia. Um, we have a company there that has all of our coders. Okay. Um, because another thing we realized as we were creating things is that we didn't want to rely on too many vendors when you rely on a vendor to do things um, and they let you down that wasn't a really nice space that i enjoyed being in so yeah. we needed to make sure that we could grow our capabilities so that when we were looking people in the eye and saying that we can deliver that we really could and that it wouldn't go over time or over budget so it became very important for us that uh, we had the capabilities in-house 
Um, it also meant that we could dream really big because we could prototype and test things. And we have a lot of R&D going all the time uh, because we want we know we want to be cutting edge with what we're doing. We know we want to make cutting edge experiences that offer a fresh approach to some uh, maybe familiar stories. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was important to us always to marry technology and art. Um, so that's why we had sort of onboard a, a tech team. Having said that, we do obviously some of our ideas are incredibly uh, niche and we need to go out to specific vendors um, who'll be able to help us realize realize our designs and work on our designs when it comes to a fabrication perspective. So we do work with with vendors, but we have a lot of um, the digital capabilities on staff. How do you find collaboration has been over the years from, again, from when you started to now finding whether it's different design agencies that focus on, you know, the design of a space or the theming of a space to, to fabricators, do you, do you find it it's, it's getting easier to find um, quality and, and talent, or do you still see that as a, as a struggle? And, and that's also coming from an international point of view, too. I think that through, organize, through organizations like SEGD, we have really been able to meet a global community um, and having strong associations with people like us from around the world means that we've been able to pa partner with other companies that I know 10 years, five, five years ago wouldn't have been able to, um, to really create truly interesting work. So I think it's much easier to find great people to work with now, um, mainly because their information's everywhere. When you read about them and the work they do, they're very open to collaborating. You can reach out. Um, but our community's grown. As you mentioned earlier, 20 years ago, I don't think anybody knew what experiential design was. And now, you know, you can go and study at university. So it really is night and day. And a lot have cha has changed in our landscape over the last 20 years. Um, so finding great people, I think, is a lot easier uh, than it was 10, 15 years ago. Do you find with the talent that you, you bring in that that forces you to change your approach to when you're, you're working on experiences? Do you, or do you, I guess the question is, is how formalized is your process or does that ever continue to change based upon you know, either the groups or just the talent that you have in the agency? That is a fantastic question. Um, our process, it remains the same. We, we call them creative directors who are sort of the creative lead on a project. They often have different strengths. So some of them, it's all about content and the written word, and that's how they communicate. Others that are more visual, like myself, mm -hmm. um, and are very much hands in with drawing sketches and looking at the visuals and tweaking that kind of thing. Um, and But our process remains the same whichever technical engineers working on it, whichever architects working on it, um, whichever UI UX designers, we have to keep the process the same so that expectations um, are always met and there's no shocks. We've noticed that what people like is uh, they don't like to be shocked. I love to be shocked, yep. so it's terrible. I'm like a terrible boss because <laughs> no, no, I'm like, I'm right there, oh, I'm right there with you. I, I, think you. I think it's good for the system. It, it, has, to, it has to happen. <laughs> Right. I like I like shocks and I like change, but I've, I've realized over the years I'm in the minority. So people hate when I come in a room and I'm like, OK, we're now going to go this way. They're like, panic, freak, what? No, sit down. <laughs> so um, I've realized that for most people, they like to have the process. They like to know their expect what's expected of them. It all has to be really clear. Um, and so then we we do have quite a strict process. But 
you're right. Sometimes, um, depending on what it is we're making, um, the process does have to be tweaked and changed. Um, and there are different processes, depending on if we're doing a build, creating media, doing an interactive, um, the processes are slightly different. Um, the other thing they often have to be is efficient um, because we're juggling so many different people internally vendors and then clients often there's multiple clients or different stakeholders so just getting a project approved um in and of itself can sometimes be um you know a real nightmare in terms of process so making sure that our managers you know really clearly understand the steps um and are able to explain creative to our client and why things are the way they are um, is also really important for us so now here's the, here's the big question so you know, obviously all of us had projects going on and, and then, you know, you, you've come to this period of, of COVID. And so for projects you had going on or even ones that you're, you're going to be starting on, I mean, how have you had to change or, or do you think you have to change a lot in, in, in telling those stories just based upon the way that we're acting socially? Like how, how do you adapt to that or have you even thought to that point? Yes. Oh, no, you're completely right. We we were lucky because we had one museum open in May, which was actually nuts. So imagine we continued to work as nobody was supposed to work all with masks on, trying to keep away yeah. from each other, fabricating and building. So that was sort of almost too late to change. So everything was retroactively fitted into it. And we were lucky because it was a an experience that was made for small groups of 10 to 12 school children at a time. So social distancing was was appropriate and applicable in this space. And there was no overcrowding and you walk through it and the, the narrative was you walk through in your group and there was not no actual physical interactions. The client didn't want anybody to be touching anything. Okay. There was a, a whole different set of um, stimulation, lots of media and lots of reading and um, play, but there wasn't a lot of interaction. So um, we got lucky with that piece. Um, but there's we're doing a piece up in the arctic and that does have interaction in it and so we're looking at options of how to keep that interaction but changing the hardware or the way that we're telling the story um or keeping it but having docents support mm -hmm. the narrative or um you know disposable pens if there's touch screens sure. so looking at ways that we can still keep it as planned but make it so that there's a comfort level there for all the visitors. How do you make, this is what I'm always curious about, how do you draw that distinction when you're, when you're creating you know, a very full-on sensory experience? And uh, you know, how do you draw that distinction as far as at what time do you want people to physically interact with something? And at what time do you want people to just sort of embrace the atmosphere and the environment that they're in? You know, how do you how do you draw that distinction? And, and even with you know taking COVID out of the question, just in general for a story, you know, how do you how do you decide that? I mean, what is what is sort of that thought process? So we for um, we did Vysotsky at the Jewish Museum in Moscow, and in that exhibit, it was a temporary exhibition where we recreated environments. Um, to a level that we'd never done before. It was a total multi-sensory um, immersion. So there, for example, we rebuilt a communal apartment where we actually took 
an old communal apartment and rebuilt it in the space. So the smell and the touch was very real and we rebuilt a cafe scene and everything was propped out. So in the communal apartment, we had a kitchen and in the kitchen we had bread, we had berries, we had all these things that you'd find in a kitchen and they gave off a smell. And so when people walked into this apartment, they could smell also the clothes hanging on the internal washing line. It was complete oh, wow. overload. Okay. And with the food, we propped it so every week it was refreshed in anticipation because it wasn't glued down that people would take it and they did sure. and we encouraged that um so food went we also had rooms in the house where you could open the doors and open the cupboards and look inside and there was things inside and again we anticipated things being removed and taken but this was a very hands-on immersive exhibit and we had nothing which said don't touch don't touch we removed anything that told people not to touch um and there were old cigarette butts in um, one moment we recreate a death scene in a home where somebody passed away and it was from wood from a home in Belarusia. So again, when you walked in, it was this overpowering sense of smell. Um, so we made it very accessible to people. There's a lot of things you can do from signage, from cordoning things off, from giving people distance, elevating objects that can encourage people not to touch things. Um, I'm not a big fan of that. I think we're really trying to create these super immersive experiences on every sensory level. Mm -hmm. I feel like sound is often underrepresented. Definitely smell, the sense of smell is a huge trigger for memory and immersion. And so, you know, I, I like people touching. I also feel like as our industry is evolving and developing, one of the unique things as you see in COVID is we want to be together. We want to be with each other. We need to be touching, feeling. Um, we don't want to be sat at home in clinical environments, you know, with our cleaning our hands all the time. So, you know, one of the advantages about what we do um, is this physical space. And I always think it's sad when you go to a ginormous sculpture garden and you can't play and touch. And I love art that you can touch. And I love immersive experiences that are built with the user in mind that they can really you know, touch what you've made and smell and pick up. And I think just standing and looking, you're somehow mm -hmm. dulling down your senses and, um, you know, making it very much a one-way conversation. And all of our experiences, we try to communicate. We want the visitor, the user to interpret what we're doing and leave a sense of themselves behind or interact or, you know, even communication over the last 10 years, when you look at social media, uh, YouTube and places like that, platforms like that. It's about a conversation, um, leaving comments, leaving your thoughts. And that two-way conversation is what we're interested in creating and stimulating in the environments we make. Do you think with what's happening now that that maybe forces or you know puts more into perspective the use of, of technology just in general? I, I liked how you talked about you, know, you try not to have these one-way conversations and I think sometimes it's like you said it's it's often overlooked or it's or it's not thought of or someone's not willing to go down the path of, of really look at these type of uh, bilaterals the right word to use bi-directional type of communications um, do you think how it is now that that kind of forces that that you know we really need more technology and technology could be an opener to creating more of these kind of experiences that 
that are friendly, that are inviting, that are you know open for exploration. Do you do you think the pendulum is, is shifting? I know we always have this conversation about when at one point does it shift, but um, does this force what you know what you're thinking now? Does this put that out there sooner? Yes, I think it definitely does. I think that's what we're all talking about and thinking about is how can technology bring us together and how can you use it in a communal experience mm-hmm. um, and a safe experience to really immerse people in story and, and narrative. Um, yes, I, I think we, we are big proponents of technology. We, we see um, it as just a mere tool. We've never used it for, oh, look, we're using this technology for the first yep. time. Um, we'll actually use older technologies if we feel like that's the best conduit for telling the story. So we always start, start with what are we trying to say and what's the best way to tell it? Um, and I think starting from that point, then you're never a slave to it. Uh, so I think using it to bring people together and um, you know, I think about the AR walks with with Apple, which are a fantastic way mm-hmm. up there in Central Park of bringing people together in a space and giving them a shared experience, but a unique shared experience. Um, it's really, you know, some great examples. Um, on a totally different note, I think the problems start to happen when you spend a lot of money and create something using technology that then can't iterate um you know sort of i call it the one hit wonder so you make something people take their technology they look at it they're like "Ooh, ah fantastic go away and put the technology down and it's over the experience is over i think those days of that are numbered i think that's sort of like the lumiere brothers at the very beginning of filmmaking um i think that when we're thinking about using technology we have to make sure that it does tell this narrative before you pick it up and use it. So on a digital online platform, before you visit somewhere, when you go and you visit it, and then when you leave afterwards, again, probably in a digital space rather than a physical space, the narrative has to continue and you have to want to go back. Because if you're talking about institutions, I think one of the things that the tough things they face is technology often costs a lot of money and once you've invested in making something it gets old really quickly and so looking at a lot of our projects now look at AI and how we can use um, engagement from visitors to evolve the story uh, where appropriately so that people can come back and see things again and things change and evolve over time. So some of our projects that are really sort of on the cutting edge of of AI are really looking at um, how do you get people back? Why would they want to come back? How can they contribute to the story? How can they feel involved? How can they feel part of of this story, this institution or this brand? Um, So really getting that emotional connection. No, I'm glad you actually addressed that because that's always been something I I think has never really been talked about too much which is the, the underlying narrative and and why do you want some I mean you want someone to come back but, and you want them to have a you know, kind of a different kind of experience when they revisit it but you know providing them a reason but how much do you think because I look at you know there's a point of you can you can overkill you can overdo a space if you if you just put too much technology in front of someone because in it, I, I look at it sometimes it's, it's a lot of noise and it's hard to focus on on the story. So, I mean, how much emphasis do you put on the build-out of, of a space? I mean, it, it, I almost feel like there needs to be this, this really conscious balance of both so that 
you know, you're not to the point of, of having someone solely rely on technology for the entire experience, that there's something to be said about the design of the space and the flow and, and where things are positioned. But do you, do you think there also needs to be enough attention just on the design of the space and that, that build out versus just always technology? Oh, I 100% agree. So we think about, you know, like a painting, we think about a space like a painting, there's moments of negative space, there's moments of frenzy, and the same in a narrative. When you think about drama, there's peaks and troughs. As soon as you've had a dramatic moment, there's often um, a little quiet moment. And it's the same with architecture and the same with interior design. If it's all busy all the time, you just shut down. It's like going mm -hmm. to the... Uh, Museum of ice cream or the museum of color or the yep. museum of whatever children want to go to right now. It's, it's full on yes. the whole time. <laughs> yes. um, you can't really, um, your emotions are so, they're just one level then. You're not experiencing ups and downs. You're not experiencing sadness and you're not able to have any repose and then you're not experiencing maybe excitement or joy or relief. So to be able to experience emotions, you have to have the moments of pause, the moments of quiet. So whenever we're designing, this is exactly what we think about when we're laying out our plan of these key emotional moments um, throughout the space and then the moments where it'll be quiet, where you won't be bombarded. And it can be something as simple as a visually plain wall or as you mentioned, an area with no technology whatsoever. Um, and then thinking about the physicality of the user. So there's moments when there's large technology that's very overwhelming, and then moments when it's much smaller and approachable. So we look at all of those things in a space because overall we say, what is the takeaway? When somebody comes to visit this experience, what is the one thing we want them to say? And I'm not, from the narrative perspective, I'm not talking about, oh, that was amazing. Yep. I'm talking about what's their one takeaway? Um, and we, it takes a lot to get to that. And then all of the different rooms, all of the different chapters in the design, in the story are a slave to that moment. Um, so yes, we really, th that's one of the key things that I think has been missing and, and that we think about constantly, these sort of ebbs and flows of emotion as the person's walking through a space. Um, and one of our big things, Brian, that we're focusing on is sort of like how sleep no more opened people's eyes up to a physicality of space and a physicality of a narrative. Mm -hmm. I think there was some things in there which, which didn't work. I think that um, I came away having had an interesting experience, you, but you the could, narrative for me wasn't there. You can there. ask my wife about that experience. She mm -hmm. just, <laughs> she she went into it, you know, we both went into it and everywhere she wanted to go for some reason was like blocked. Like there was a person there like, you can't go there. <laughs> you can't go in that room. And so she eventually got frustrated. <laughs> and retired to the lobby bar that they have and just listened to the jazz music. And I was like hop skipping around that place. It seemed like everywhere I wanted to go was free, was free reign. And I'm like, I want to go back because you could have a different experience. But um, sorry, that was a side, a side story. But I just thought of that as you were uh, discussing. So, But the issue for us with that was, I'm not sure what the narrative was. I don't think the point was to have a narrative. Mm -hmm. But a lot of, of the... Uh, people and clients that we work with have a narrative they need to convey and so that's the trick we're trying to start to play around with telling a narrative in a physical space so being able to move visitors 
through our narrative so we can control when they're up, when they're crying, when they're exposed to certain pieces of the story. And it's less about random access and, oh, I'm going to walk over to this wing right now. And then tomorrow, if I return, I'll go over and I'll look at this. So we're looking at how we can control the storytelling. Um, and technology allows us to be able to do that now through audio, through visual cues, through being able to turn lights on and off to, to guide people through a space. Um, and so it's very exciting that that idea of being able to almost tell a film or tell a story, but instead of people sitting down, you're moving them through this space. So I have to ask, so I, I had seen um, the photographs of the Zoya exhibit that you had worked on, and I'm absolutely fascinated by it because it's a, I mean, it's a really nice story, a World War II story, if I'm correct, um, in Russia. Um, but, and I invite everyone to, to, to do try to find images that are out there, but can you talk a little bit about that experience? Because just looking at the photographs and knowing what I know about her, um, it's very emotional. You know, it's, it's, you wanna embrace what she had done as a, as a, eventually as a hero, recognized as a hero, but at the same time too, that what she had to encounter during that period, like how, the challenges I imagine you must face to turn that into a story had to be yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, yes, it was. So there was already a very small museum that had been there for a long, long, long time. Um, and so they had a huge amount of research done and on artifacts, and it was very like more traditional museum and everything's displayed. And I can't stand that because I walk in, I'm immediately overwhelmed and I can't focus on what I'm supposed to, and it's book after book after book after book and yes. written word after written word after written words and I'm checking out. So we decided to approach this from a completely different perspective. So we did. We always do tons of research and our research team go deep, but it became apparent very quickly that we needed to understand what it must have been like to be Zoya. So we always sort of go from that first person and we realized that her story was about this, you know, teenage girl about to graduate high school you know, dedicated, good at school, mm -hmm. well-read, like math, uh, conscientious, um, but very proud. She really felt her, her motherland at her core. You know, she was definitely a child of the Soviet Union. Yep. Um, and so when this war hit, they were all conscripted. They had three days of training. And a lot of the times these classrooms were commandeered and turned into these sort of places for battalions to quickly train uh, the youth. And armed with how to build a Molotov cocktail and how to use your compass and kind of shoot a gun, off they went um, as partisans to fight against the Nazis with their missions. And so, you know, putting ourselves back in her headspace and imagining one minute you're about to graduate, go to college, and you have your whole life ahead of you. And the next minute that's caught short um, and you're on a mission and you're then caught by the Nazis um, because you're told but told on by your fellow russians and then you're hung and mutilated and it's like how how was she so brave yeah. how do you deal with that how do you face it and that's what we tried to capture so it's a lot of paring down of information and focusing on key moments again of the story the most dramatic moments the ones that will resonate with visitors and then thinking okay how do we tell that what artifacts do we have? Um, looking for the quiet moments, looking for um, where you'd like, you know, we have a ginormous um, blow up of, of the images of the Nazis walking her to the gallows with the Russian people standing around. Um, 
it's incredibly moving, but it was really important for me to make a big deal of this moment and all that it represented from a World War II perspective and from a people reacting to people because a lot of the Russian people were very upset that the saboteurs were coming in and essentially Zoya's mission was to set fire to homes and barns in this Russian village that were housing uh, Nazis and also their mm -hmm. horses. They had over 2,000 horses in the village. And so that's what she went to do. Um, they started off with a huge battalion. They were all killed on the way to the mission, except three people. Um, and then she she was caught, as I said, by, by Russians who were encouraged by the Nazis to stand all night until they found her. Um, and then she was used um, as an example against the Russian people. That's why they, they hung her. Yeah. But I mean, she, she was very, um, I was fascinated by how you can be so young and so defiant and a real true martyr to a cause um, and that that for us was a universal story um, of and also in this case I was interested because it was a woman and we don't actually have a lot of museums about women yeah. um, so I was very excited to tell a female story and also of a very courageous young lady so um just that was sort of what gripped us and that was what we chose to focus on in this museum. It's very well done, just again, from what I had seen online. And uh, so I'm just absolutely amazing to, to bring a story like that to life. And, and I know that that is no small undertaking, um, especially when you, like you said, when you couple the story and just the fact that too, how she's looked at as a hero, you know, you, you want to do justice to that image. And uh, and putting that environment that really makes you feel connected. So that that's definitely no small small task. One one of the other fun things that we tried to do was do um, in the classroom have people sit behind the classroom table as she would have done and read the writings that she'd written. And you know, a lot of times we're taught the same literature as we were mm -hmm. done a long time ago and see the parallels um, and also learn some of the things that she was taught when she was becoming a partisan so that they sort of really walked in her shoes and could empathize with her. And then it's important in Russia, they have a march where they honor their ancestors and people who fought in World War II. So kids go now with a picture of their great or great, great grandparent who fought in the war. So we created an interactive that people can bring images of their ancestors and record their story and, and scan and have their photograph added to this immersive projection which would really be a living memorial and so constantly updated. So again, thinking about experiences that everybody can participate in, young and old, um, and creating this online archive of the people and for the people about um, people who survived or not and their stories in World War II was really important for us. So that sort of rounds out the entire museum. As you leave, you get the opportunity to tell your ancestor's story and share it with others, to keep remembering uh, that dreadful war and how many people sacrificed their lives so that we can be here today. So when you look at experiences like, like that and, and just everything else that either you work on or, or see, I mean, how, do, I mean, how do we get people or how do you think people can to come out of, of shelter out of quarantine to eventually get comfortable to go into those experiences I mean do you think that's a, a challenge we face for a while or do you think everyone we're just so ready or realizing that we need those experiences in our life because we, we're not going to get that by just looking on Instagram or 
watching YouTube. We really need this type of physical connection. Yeah, well, we 100% need the physical connection. I think even if you're very introverted and are enjoying being at home, I think people need to be be around people. That's part of the experience. That's part. When I think of going to the Louvre and seeing the Mona Lisa, I mean, part of it, unfortunately, is just there's everybody sure. all going to see it with you. I mean, it really adds. And then there's the idea of going to see the movies or um, going to see a concert. There's a lot of our human connection is about shared experiences. And I don't believe that's going anywhere quickly. I just I'm very optimistic that the design industry will really bounce back and thrive and that the given situation, although it could continue in some way, shape or form forever, will be addressed by design. So, for example, our masks, I can't wait. Somebody's going to come up with a much better version of these masks that don't hurt your ears and aren't yes. so large. And yes. I implore any designer out there quickly, lightweight, new material will be made. There's going to be breakthroughs design, enabled by designers um, that's going to make our lives easier. One of the good sides is um, I think people do crave um, stimulation of the senses and being at home, all your sight is stimulated, but nothing else. When you're in an immersive environment, you know, it's everything. As I said, it can be touch, it can be smell, it can even be taste. Mm -hmm. um, and so making sure that our, our personal experiences in person have all of the, our senses stimulated will really set it apart from a purely digital experience. Um, and so I really do feel like um, and implore designers to come up with solutions that will enable us to still have a human connection and pull people out of their homes um, and encourage them to come in and, and experience things and participate. It'll just be done with a lot more safety. Yep. You know, and even that will evolve and technology will evolve. And um, yeah, I'm super, I get very excited no, no, because I really I, feel I, I, like no, it's good. No, I, I, you know, I, I, the um, the passion is contagious and, and I, I share in it as well. I I guess the, the last question I'd, I'd be curious and, and your thoughts. So, you know, I agree. I, I think, you know, design agencies are, are certainly going to be challenged to to kind of rethink on how experiences are designed and how they make them welcoming. Um, you know, I, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on the word agency, and 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 where I'm getting at is it seemed we were going down this path to where there was really the I guess the phrase or more of a, a hybrid agency where technology became a practice as part of it. So it wasn't a traditional EGD firm. Um, you had you know agencies just like yours, and 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 you know, what I'm trying to build and, and other ones out there to where you're realizing there's this balance of, of having fundamentals rooted in design, but then technology impacts how those designs come together. Do you think that there would be this continued shift or that some of these agencies that maybe just stay the course of EGD will need to realize that either they find a collaboration out there with, with a more digitally focused agency or they need to spend more time in understanding how to bring digital into their practice. And I use the word digital because it's very broad, but I'm just wondering in that sense of the design community, do you think that's a, a little bit of a, a scary shakeup or something that is, is just necessary for all of us to continue to grow? I think it's something that's necessary for us to continue to grow. And I think, honestly, that if design agencies don't embrace technology, either by finding partners or growing internal teams, that they'll be left out to pasture. 
Um, I think technology is here. It's not going anywhere. In fact, it's becoming more yeah, no, no, it's, it's, dependent it's, on it. It was a loaded question, but it's it's been one that I, I like to ask a lot because I feel that there's, at times you get frustrated because it, it's, we just, some don't go down that path because they're unfamiliar with it. And then there are some that really do embrace and understand that to do justice to whatever you're designing for, that you know, some element of digital adds another layer that does do justice and creates a more deeper and enriching experience that you, you just need to deliver because that's the expectation of the audience. Yes, it's just, it's another tool in the toolkit, um, but it's like one you have to have there, right? If it's missing, um, unless there's a design reason why you're excluding technology from something, which is totally fine. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the ex- exhibits where we've just finished designing actually requires people to leave their cell phones in all technology. It has technology in it. That's just madness. It, but, leave your you know, we do keep, I know, how exciting. <laughs> and I think we're going to have lines and lines of people. It's going to be crazy. Um, yeah, it's the antithesis of this. But I think that um, I'm hoping also that younger designers are more aware and have been taught to um, include technology in their design and um, anticipate it. Um, But again, I think it needs to be embraced wholly by designers. It can't be sort of the bastard stepchild that's like, oh gosh, now we have to stick an interactive. Yeah, no, no. That makes for bad. Yeah, it makes for bad. bad experiences. Um, the other thing that I think scares people is technology is constantly changing and uh, keeping up with it can feel like very futile, especially when you're a company with overhead and staff. And oh, yes. so um, understanding technology and what, how you want to use it and what technology is right for a company like yours is also sort of key. And we've tried not to run and chase the latest fad. Mm-hmm. Obviously we're aware of everything. Um, and again, just utilizing partners when we really feel that that technology is going to work. So we're working with a company actually based in London right now as we're designing experience with robots. We don't have anybody on staff per se who works with robots, um, but we're working with this vendor um, and we're working on some custom robots for a space. Um, but it's all basically the same technology. <laughs> It's all the same way. You have to prototype, prototype, prototype. Expect it's going to break. It'll break yes. and you'll be ready for it yes. and then you'll fix it. <laughs> very, very well spoken. So are you, so I have to say, so I, I guess next to the last question. Um, so have you been traveling um, with, with the offices over in Europe? Have you been on a plane? No, it's been fantastic. <laughs> we haven't been on a plane. I haven't been on a plane for months and months. And you know, a silly secret, Brian. I hate flying. I'm terrified. So I fly all the time. Yeah. Like this crazy lady sitting with my eyes closed. I just have this ridiculous fear. But so I've really enjoyed the last few months um, getting sleep and not traveling. But we um, use, we're super um, all up in the cloud. Sure. All of our media's already been up in the cloud before we got going. So the transition was really easy. Um, and our team works flexi hours. So we basically can talk anytime and we're all on Slack. So I would say, the biggest thing is clients who say, I want to see you, mm-hmm. you. And so they've had to all get used to using Skype or using Zoom, yeah. which before they, they swore yeah. they couldn't. Yeah. There is no way we could have a Skype or Zoom call. Yeah. It was like, really? Yeah. Okay, I'll get on a plane. Yeah, everything and was supposed suddenly... to fall apart when, when we turned to, oh, uh, to yeah. virtual. So <laughs> end of the world. But it hasn't. No. It hasn't. Another nice silver lining. Yes. So, um, yes. yes, I won't be running to 
every meeting to be in person any longer. Well, I do miss, um, but I we do, do miss the travel. I, I'll be honest. I, I do miss, especially do. going over to Europe. I, I, I do miss that. I, I was fortunate. I had one trip to Amsterdam earlier this year and that was it. That is, that was, that was my one and, and solo mm-hmm. um, international experience this year, which is sad. So I, am... so I miss the opening of Zoya. Can you imagine? I couldn't oh, get in because it was the beginning that... of May. Oh no. All right. So that, mm-hmm. that would definitely, oh that would have broken my heart so i <laughs> it did it was sorry it'll just make it even more special when you are knowing what we've all had to deal with to get there yeah. and to see that that will just make it even more bittersweet <laughs> you will too i will at least i think it will i mean that's that's for me yeah. that's for me so you'll have to you'll have to tell me later on what that was like <laughs> i will I'll do the coulda, shoulda, woulda afterwards. Oh, why do we do this? We've done it this way. And it's the same with prototyping this Arctic uh, exhibition we're unveiling in December. And uh, it's a ton of fabrication. I think we've got 50 different unique pieces and it's all happening via video conferencing, videos I'm getting sent. And it's super frustrating to not actually be able to be in the space and give immediate feedback when you're actually at the build stage. So um, yeah, there are few things that I really enjoy being able to fly in to do. Someday. Someday. Well someday. But having a good team. Having been able to rely on a good team is Well that's that's always important. important. It's the team, honestly. Mm-hmm. It's it's I know what that's like and, and uh, you just have to have trust in your team and uh... Well yeah, that's the other thing about technology is um I'm definitely more on the design side than the technology side. Um and so when you do work in a design firm and you need to bring in technologists, you know, hiring good people to head up that department means you can be just as strong in the technology as the design. We are, I mean, every day I look at my people and we're a total team and I'm just as as strong as our weakest link and I rely on them. Our projects are a complete collaboration uh, through our entire organization. Um, And, you know, I think that makes better better projects to be honest where you can't tell who owned it and you're like wow that was a great idea we had we have that often um so yeah i'm really proud of our team and what they've managed to create well i will have to say thank you very much for uh for spending time to chat with me it's been an absolute pleasure um so it's always exciting to one to just to hear what you are up to and just to hear your perspective, um, but then also just to continue this conversation. So um, thank you very much. Thank you, Brian, for having me on. This was great to catch up and um, I'm really proud to have been part of this interview and part of your podcast. I think it's, you know, filling that void that we all we all feel and need this sort of conversation. So thank you. No, my, my pleasure. Um, if you can let everyone know how they can find you, where to look at some of your projects. Yeah, so you can find me on LinkedIn at Abigail Honor, A-B-I-G-A-I-L-H-O-N-O-R. Or you can reach out to us on our website, which is lorimipsumcorp.com. And I know as designers, I do not need to explain why we're called Lorem Ipsum, because you'll get it. So that's lorimipsumcorp.com. Well, Abby, again, thank you very much. Um, and again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Experience by Design podcast. I, again, Brian Mazzaro, so you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at OpenEyeGlobal. And join me as we continue to explore different perspectives on experience design.